0: Thanks, Johnny. Um, If you can see that passage in front of you, whether that's on your phone or or you've got a Bible there with you, um, you'll find that really helpful. In a few moments we'll come to think about those verses, but why don't I just pray for us just as we come to God's Word briefly here. Father God, we thank you that you are such a good Father to us, and one of the ways that you um, show your goodness to us is through giving us your words that, Lord, we can see you, we can understand you, we can hear from you, and, Lord, we can also understand ourselves and life and what you've called us to. Lord, we thank you that you don't leave us uh, lost and not, not knowing where to go, but, Lord, that you do speak to us. So, Lord, as we come to your word, we pray that you'd help us to continue in worship of you by uh, listening to your voice this morning. And Spirit, just ask that you would speak through these verses, through uh, my words too, Lord, that you might uh, minister to our hearts this morning, whatever sort of a week uh, we may have had, whatever sort of place uh, we might be in just now, that Lord, you would uh, bring your word to bear on our hearts and Lord, that we might leave here that much more confident of your love and your grace towards us and, and equipped to go out and into the week and into every moment that you've prepared for us to be your people. So Lord, pray that uh, you might do your work now in in these moments. Amen. If you keep the passage there in front of you, you might find that helpful. You might be relieved to know, I'm actually only really going to speak about verses 35 to 39, but I thought it'd be helpful for you for the context of it to to hear all the rest uh, as well. Um, I don't know about you, but uh, I know for me, uh, sometimes it's hard to imagine that Jesus would really know uh, what my life looks like. You know, the sort of stresses, the strains, the at times chaos uh, of it. Well, in those first sort of few verses there from 9 to 34, you get something of a snapshot of just one of Jesus's days. Or at least that's the way that that Mark presents it for us. It's supposed to go from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. And you see this frantic uh, activity and frantic demands upon him. Uh, Hopefully, if if these slides work, I've got here uh, behind me a picture from Rembrandt. This is called Christ Healing the Sick. Uh, It's based on this this scene. Uh, It's a very famous uh, etching uh, by him here. Uh, Don't worry though, Jesus is sort of um, glowing. He hasn't been exposed to uranium. Uh, He sort of looks somewhat here like he's been sort of had a close run in with the KGB. He's fine. Uh, One of the sort of good things about religious art is that it sort of tries to picture things for us. uh, And one of the bad things about religious art is it pictures things for us. Uh, And often the thing is that, you know, especially with classic artists, they have this sort of discomfort with the humanity of Jesus. So they sort of feel the need to distinguish him. Hence the sort of glowing as if he's touched toxic waste. But what it does show us really well is the desperation of the crowds before him. And hopefully you can get just a sense of that there. So this morning we want to ask, well, how does Jesus sympathize with our chaotic lives? And how does he deal with it as he faces that himself? And how might we respond? So I hope, just as we start off here, if there's one practical thing you sort of take away from today, that it might be this, to do less and to do purposefully. Purposefully. So I want to look at four things that we see Jesus engaging with here in this passage. I want to see him engaging with fame, how he doesn't seek it, with time, that he actually controls it, with expectations, that Jesus is willing to upset them, and fourthly, purpose, Jesus sticks to it. Firstly, let's look at fame. Let's look at those verses there, 9 to 34, and we'll just briefly scan over some of this because really I want to think about the last five or so. But we see here that Jesus' ministry begins and this a- activity and fame just sort of snowball uncontrollably in the first chapter of Mark's gospel. I don't know if you can remember back now, I don't know how many years it, it actually was now, to the beast from the east. Uh, me and my family, we were living in, in Wales at the time, so hopefully, oh, there you go, you can see some some pictures of us there. And if you look really closely, you'll see me being a great dad on the one on the far side. Once you sort of see it, you'll, you'll sort of see what's going on there, uh, to my poor son. Uh, but at the time, I remember this because the day that the snow began, I had a funeral. And I had to drive, Wales is very stereotypical to what you think it looks like it is loads of valleys and steep hills. And so to get to the, to the funeral, I have to drive over a mountain and then down again. And it's starting to snow and it's already icy. Uh, and I find partway through the journey that as I'm coming down the mountain, uh, I'm very much not in control of the car. And my best hope is to simply just about sort of steer my skid to sort of get there. I'm in a sort of uncontrollable momentum. And that's something of what we see of Jesus' day here. Notice here, Mark, eight times, uses that word immediately. And then immediately this happened. Immediately the next thing happened. Eight times in only five paragraphs. And yet there's an odd thing to Jesus' rising fame here. Because this is a fame that's in spite of Jesus' attempts to stop it. Verse 35, we will come to in a moment, sees him withdrawing. Trying to get away. Verse 44 shows him uh, telling the leper who is cleansed, don't tell anyone. He's trying not to be famous. Secondly, it's a fame that's unmatched. This is a fame like no other fame, really you can think of it's so big and you know we live in a globalist world right where the world has got smaller we're more and more connected with further and further afield places it feels like the world has sort of become smaller it's actually very possible on uh, twitter and instagram and everything like this to have millions and millions of followers because the world somehow has got a bit smaller but this is a time where this isn't really known there isn't really such a thing of being known across the world It's a fame that's so big that even John Lennon, who will sort of famously say, Christianity will go, it will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue about that. I'm right, and I'll be proved right. We're more popular than Jesus now. The interesting thing about that quote is that there was a time that Jesus was more popular even than the Beatles. And in our kind of living memory, there's no fame quite like what the Beatles had, to understand that sort of hysteria that that followed them. And yet, Jesus' fame is even greater here. But it's a fame also that's deserved. I don't know whether you have this thing of sometimes you, you look at celebrities today or, you know, the TV tells you they're a celebrity. And you go, okay, I'll take your word for it. Uh, but, you know, second question, what are they famous for? <laughs> what is it that they actually do other than being photographed at different places, but this is a fame that's deserved. You can actually get it. You can totally get why it would be that people would want to be desperately surrounding themselves around Jesus because however broken and however sort of beaten down you are, this is someone who can restore you. And look at what he does in those verses. Healing people, exercising people. These are people who are desperate and broken, aren't they? And here is Jesus restoring them to life in a moment with a word. It's an incredible rise to prominence, but you can understand it. The demands on Jesus are immense. And Mark wants to give you something of a feel of this divine chaos that's going on right at the beginning of his gospel account. So that you, in your frantic and chaotic life, might know that Jesus can understand and empathise completely with you. And yet, we'll also see that Jesus is not afraid here to make hard decisions in order to live on purpose. He's not going to be owned by that sort of celebrity. He's willing even actually to do less and risk disapproval, risk the disappointment of the crowds, in order that he might be doing purposefully. So I wonder just as we begin to think about those verses there, thirty five to thirty nine, I'll give you a moment just to think and reflect yourself, you know, do you struggle with overcommitting your time? And what do you think might be some of the causes of that? We firstly see that Jesus doesn't seek fame, if that actually, if anything, he actively tries to discourage it. Secondly, we see that Jesus controls his time. I wonder how you manage your time. What do you invest it in? How do you decide that It's easy to feel that's a very modern problem, isn't it? But I'm not sure it's that new after all. Listen to the words of this Pink Floyd song, Time. It says, ticking away the moments that make up a dull day, fritter and waste the hours in an offhand way. Every year's getting shorter, never seem to find the time, plans that either come to naught or half a page of scribbled lines. Hanging on in quiet desperation is the English way. The time is gone, the song is over. Thought I'd something more to say. On the one hand, we waste so much time. We fritter and waste it in an offhand way, and yet we face such demands on our time, we feel we never have any. I wonder if you know something of that dilemma. And so what does Jesus do in response to this clamor that's gathering around him? Well, verse 35, we're told, "'Rising up very early in the morning, "'while it was still dark, he departed.'" Jesus leaves the crowd, Leaves the crowd in the dark when there's no one up and he won't be seen for doing it and withdraws to pray. In fact, actually, in, in the Gospels we get three times, three critical moments at which Jesus does this. Withdraws from the crowds to pray on his own each of them at critical moments we see it right here at the beginning of his ministry the defining of his ministry these are the moments really where we're going to see what what is he going to be about and this is a critical turning point how he responds and how he handles this really will set up how the rest of his ministry goes we see him doing it after feeding the 5,000 and some people even would want to make him king in that moment and we see him praying in Gethsemane just before his arrest and death In the build up to and in the aftermath of great moments, critical moments in his ministry, where do we find Jesus? What do we find him doing? What do we find him doing with his time? He's in the presence of his father. For all the craziness around Jesus and the demands upon him, Jesus is controlling his time. Rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. Uh, The choice of the words there, it's it's always difficult, right, to, to know how to translate a word when there's several potential meanings okay and so the original gospel is written in Greek and as you then translate it from Greek back into sort of modern English well what do you do because actually there's a few different meanings you could put here. Desolate in some ways doesn't quite do justice to to what's being talked about here because geographically speaking I think there's a map up here of, of where Jesus is he's moved out from his hometown of Nazareth and he's in Capernaum here is sort of uh, somewhere between a village and a, and a town, uh, based as it is uh, by the water there, very much on the sort of fishing trade. That's why you see Jesus' first disciples of fishermen, because they're common, average men. That really is the sort of trade and industry there. But there's, there's no desolate places. You know, when we think desolate, you think sort of wilderness so nothing really going on there. There is no places like that around there. In fact, actually, the land around Caponium and all around that sort of waterfront there actually is fantastic land for farming, or at least it was sort of at the time. And so actually, it was very prosperous. You had uh, a lot of people so, sort of coming in and out and, and turning their hand at growing things there because the land was really good. So there's nowhere that's desolate in the sense of there not being anything. Where Jesus goes to, and this is the other way it can be translated, is a lonely place. Jesus goes to a place where he knows he'll be on his own. It's a place of solitude, a place of quiet, a place of not much going on, a place away from the crowds. See, uh, Jesus is fully human. He's fully God, of course, but he's also fully human at the same time. That's pretty mind-blowing. Anyone who says they can get their minds around that is is lying or doesn't know what they don't know. It's mind-blowing. But he's fully human. And so that means that amongst everything else, because he's not just this, but he is a perfect example for humanity. The fancy word is Christus exemplar. He is a model human. So, this is an example for us that we need. That we need programmed time where we withdraw to solitude with God. And that's hard, isn't it? Is that not? With all the commitments and responsibilities that we have? That's difficult. And yet, that's needed. It's hard for so many reasons, isn't it? But one is that our technological advances and innovations uh, come with inbuilt curses upon us, don't they? For example, you know, the light bulb solved the problem of darkness and that restricting your working day and activity. Forever since, the curse has been that it's forever extended our working days. The phone helps us to connect with people who are not physically in the same place as. Of course, the curse is that it means that we're never not contactable. Or with social media. It has a great aim, doesn't it? Of keeping up to date with everything sort of people are doing, people not necessarily right around you here and now. And yet, it's also produced this horrible state in which we simply never get a break from infotainment, it's constantly there before us. All these things, and so many more, of course, actually actively hinder the process of withdrawal and solitude, don't they? But it's also hard because many of us simply don't like being alone with ourselves. And yet, for that very reason, that is why it is good. What you struggle to be alone with is your soul. See, the world devalues soul care. Instead, it gives you a million other ways to procrastinate and to amuse yourself to death instead, rather than to be with yourself. And there he prayed. He isn't doing nothing, he's doing something. He prays. Even Jesus now needs to be with God to pray. And stop to think about that a second because that's incredibly significant. Jesus did not used to need to pray. Think about that. It's a unique feature of Jesus' humanity that he now needs to pray because he never needed to before. Before his incarnation, before he becomes human, where he's with the Father at his right hand in heaven, what need does he have to pray? He's there with him, he is God. He has no need to pray when he's there. What grace that Jesus has lowered himself to the place of now needing to pray because he's dislocated from his father. And there he prays. He prioritizes prayer. He prioritizes that communion with God before other things, even ministry. It is more important for him to be with his father. The commentator says this about Jesus' prayer life. He says prayer was an essential part of his service and continually guarded that service from overactivity as well as from indolence. It was at the same time a refuge from an enthusiastic recognition on the part of the individuals who did not desire to become disciples. Do you see that? That not all recognition is as good as it seems. And Jesus needs a refuge from somewhat mindless approval to just be with his father. Jesus controls his time. He doesn't seek fame. Thirdly, he upsets expectations. Look at verse 36 and 37 there. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone... Is looking for you. This is Simon, Simon Peter. Uh, In fact, you know, the gospel is marked as as being the gospel of Mark, but actually we might just as well call it the gospel of Peter. Uh, Mark, Peter's cousin and sort of personal assistant, the same John Mark who's recorded as having fled from Jesus at his arrest, uh, and the same one who goes AWOL from a mission with Paul and, and others. Has served with Peter in Rome and as Peter was executed uh, he feels he's the next to go he's been close with him the clock is ticking and what Mark does is under the threat of the gospel message perhaps being lost entirely Mark hastily records gospel accounts based on the preaching ministry of Peter and that's why as in this moment here we so often get it from the perspective of Peter. Simon and those who were with him searched after him. Peter and the disciples here misunderstood Jesus' identity and his purposes, and not for the last time. Another commentator, Lamar Williamson, puts it like this, their misunderstanding of his priorities introduces attention, which will become a major theme of the gospel, that those who should know Jesus best seem so often To understand him least. And yet, you have to feel sympathy for them. They've not been on the job long. (laughs) They've only started at verse 16. This may even be actually the first couple of days on the job. And this crowd is just built and are asking for him. And he's gone. What are they to do? And yet, look at the nonsense of it. Here's... This guy who's tagged along a couple of days ago thinks he knows better. <laughs> thinks he should be directing Jesus. And yet, before you and I judge, don't we do that? <laughs> don't we do that? Do we imagine that Jesus just needs to hear my advice? Maybe if you could just do it my way, might work out better we don't want to say it like that we just throw the toys out the pram when he doesn't do what we wanted you know we just don't verbalize what we're really feeling and saying they searched for him in fact actually the word is is hunt down they've hunted him down and perhaps this shows some of the desperation they would have been feeling this sort of frantic atmosphere that's built up where on earth is he what are we supposed to do left with this crowd. I think I get how poor Peter must have felt. Here's this crowd who are desperate. They're people who want healing, who want exercising from demons. And I'm left here. What am I going to do? What am I going to do for them? I don't know if you've been left in those sort of moments, perhaps in work or life, where you just know what on earth you're doing. When I left school at 18, uh, I just went to get the first job that would have me uh, because I realized I didn't, I I knew I wanted to go into ministry eventually. Um, And I realized I couldn't afford to do two degrees. Actually, truth be told, I couldn't afford one, uh, but I knew I definitely couldn't afford two. So I'm just going to have to get a job for a while and do that. So I wound up working in accountancy uh i'm 18 and i know nothing of what i'm doing and i'm learning on the job i remember one of the things we used to do as a small firm is we would come in and deal with insolvency so companies going under and now we're the guys who turn up and tell everybody yeah we're really sorry there's no money (laughs) whilst the directors have sort of walked away uh and you know just a few weeks really into this job we're dealing with a uh, a hearing aid company that's gone under, and so we're getting bags and bags of hearing aids and cash from it coming back in, and we deal with it. And uh, one day, my boss goes out to a golfing kind of networking thing, and I'm just sort of left there as a bailiff turns up. And uh, <laughs> I'm 18 years old, I, I've not expected the bailiff to come, otherwise, perhaps I would have just not been in. <laughs> just timed that for a sort of lunch break. Uh, I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> And I'm just frantically calling my boss saying, Tony, what do I do when a bailiff comes? (laughs) Like, he's really angry. I get how Peter might have felt. What on earth am I supposed to do? You've just left me here. And then they find him. Can you imagine the relief? And maybe a slight annoyance, (laughs) you know, after a few minutes. Where was it that you went that was so important? Everyone is looking for you. And yet, look at how Jesus ignores that statement. Look at how Jesus ignores that statement, loaded with expectations that Jesus rejects. You know, this is the way of fame, isn't it? And this is the thing that the disciples can't understand. If if you want to be big, then there's this reality, isn't there, that if they want you to do X in order for them to stay... Well, then you need to do that quicker than person B, who might do that quicker or better than you. Otherwise, these people will go to them. If this is about building a bigger and bigger and bigger crowd, then what on earth are you doing, Jesus, on your own? You see that they miss that, don't they? This is the reality, isn't it, even for these sort of online influence, influencers, isn't it? The, the, the smoke and mirrors of it, that it's really not as glamorous as it seems. All. You must free yourself from the shackles of other people's expectations. Stop doing stuff simply to please other people. Instead, do what pleases your Father in heaven. And look how free Jesus is for doing that. Jesus doesn't seek fame, he controls his time, he upsets. There are expectations. And then lastly, he sticks to his purpose. Jesus is able to take ownership over his time because he's clear about what his purpose is. It says there, verse 38, Let us go on to the next towns, and I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And notice what Jesus doesn't say as well. Jesus does not apologize He does not explain away. He doesn't address their concerns. Just simply says, Let's go. This is why I've come here. And look what he comes to do. Because on the one hand, he does less, but he doesn't do nothing. He does purposefully. He says, That I may preach. He's not come to be a miracle worker, he's come with a message from the Father. See, the crowd will often want, over the course of the gospel, a miracle worker who will fix bodies. And Jesus will do that at moments, because he can. But Jesus came to preach, to save their souls. Notice, Jesus hasn't come just to make the maximum number of followers he possibly can. And there are implications to that, if he had come to do that. Because if the aim is just to make as big a crowd as you possibly can, then surely, you know, he should be maximizing every opportunity to go viral. And this is a huge one. He's healing people. Healing people of diseases that as far as they know and are concerned, there's no possible uh, hopeful outcome from. Only God could possibly heal this. We don't even know what to do with it. Freeing people of demons that have oppressed them for most of their lives. You know, surely if the goal is make more and more people part of the crowd, then you should be taking these opportunities. Yeah, celebrities have whole teams focused on this, don't they? They have whole teams managing their social media accounts. They have teams securing pre-sales of their books so they can go up the New York Times bestseller list. They have people staging appearances for them, getting them in the shadow of other influential people. But this is not Jesus' purpose. He has come to preach. Verse 14 to 15, we hear about that message. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is what he's come to do. And he's not lost sight of the purpose he's been given. how about you? Do you have sight? God's purpose for you? He's called you to? In order to do what God has called you to, you need to do less. You need to stop doing some things that take you off purpose. And yet, doing less does not equal doing nothing. He went throughout all Galilee with them teaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Doing less doesn't mean doing less for the kingdom. The world simply is not lacking apathetic, disengaged, consumeristic, spiritual tourists of Christians. They're ten a penny. We're not lacking that. Doing less doesn't mean doing less for the kingdom. Quite the contrary. That niche is already covered. Instead, the world is in desperate need of the people of God really living as the people of God, living out their gospel identities together out in the world. Not leaving church to be a service that's attended on a Sunday if I don't have some better social plans, but are people who are living out their gospel identity together, living as family, living as those who are loving and supporting and caring for one another, prioritizing, gathering and sharing our lives together, living alongside each other, those living out as lifelong learners, those humbly seeking to grow together in their faith, investing time and energy in our faith, Those who are living as servants, giving and using their time, their skills, their resources to serve in the community God's put us in. And those living as missionaries, taking seriously our call that whatever it is that we do, wherever it is that we're put, that we're there to share the good news of Jesus where we've been put. Proactively actually getting to know people, sharing our lives with them, opening our lives to them, loving them and sharing the gospel. The world is not in need of some disengaged spiritual tourists simply seeking to go from one experience to the next, consuming products delivered to them. The world is not in shortage of those. But it is in shortage of the people of God living simply, authentically as the people of God. Jesus sticks to his purpose and he walks that out leaving things that were not on purpose. I wonder are there some things that you need to simply stop doing? I wonder if there's times that you feel there just doesn't seem to be so much engagement in your faith I don't seem to hear f- from God I don't seem to feel like my faith is is really flourishing if you don't make space where will that happen I wonder if there's some things that you've done more for the sake of pleasing other people you just find it hard to say no (laughs) but then don't enjoy the chaos (laughs) that, that ensues as you try to keep up with this snowballing thing that's just out of control what would it be like to live on purpose everything that we do to have a purpose behind it to be living out the calling God's given us in the place that he's put us Why don't I pray and then we'll uh, sing a closing song together. Jesus, I thank you for your commitment to us that you would want to come here and to live as one of us, amongst us. And Lord, as we thought that being fully God in, in every way and yet being willing to reduce yourself to also being fully human In every way. Reducing yourself to the point that actually not being located with your Father in heaven. But actually needing to pray like us. That you would be willing to do that for us. So that you could come and live a perfect life in our place for us. And die a death in our place that you might give yourself for us. Father, forgive us when we all, as much as anyone, we have that feeling at times of life being somewhat chaotic and finding that it's difficult to, to find time for you amongst everything else. Jesus, thank you that you show us what it looks like here to prioritize just being with you, Father, and the freedom that brings. Father, we thank you that you long for us to, to be with you, to be in communion with you, to be in your presence in prayer. And So, Spirit, we ask for your help. that You might help us to see in our lives, and we each have different lives, different callings, different places in which you've put us, what it might look like. Just perhaps to rebalance some things to reprioritize in some places and maybe to change our focus and purposes to prioritise being with you Spirit we pray for your help that you would minister to us in those places and Lord that I pray that that will come through and come over to people if that, that's, that's that's not about a, a, a heavy, a burdensome, oh, there's another thing I have to include in my schedule. But here's a life-giving and freeing and empowering and equipping thing to be that much more in step with you. We pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace towards us, that you keep going with us. We've thought here about these disciples who so often misunderstand and get it wrong. And here was not a particularly great moment for them, again. And Lord, we too make mistakes and misunderstand. And not every moment is great. And yet you're so gracious and loving to us. You just love us like a father who wants to be with his children. Wants his children to walk alongside him and to know him and to know life with you. Well, we thank you for your love towards us. And Lord, just pray for anyone who might not fully know that at this moment or might need reminding or encouraging again that Holy Spirit, you would do that for us now in this time. So, Lord, I pray that you would use my uh, imperfect and uh, uh, very average words, but Spirit, that you would speak to us through my I pray and, and do your work for your purposes that Lord this week we might be a blessing to those you put us around that we might be able to show what it looks like to live life in all its fullness knowing you for your glory we ask it and also for our good